For this morning, we're going to continue our studies in the life of Abraham, get back on track after we broke for Christmas. We're in Genesis 23. We're looking at verses 1 through 20. The topic uh, that we're going to find there is that uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies. And when she does, Abraham secures a cemetery plot where she and he and their descendants after them can be buried. And so we're titling our message, A Happily Buried Couple. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for our morning. It's a glorious morning. It's, I guess, New Year's morning, Lord. Uh, and, and that's not without significance. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a time, Lord, just to be refreshed in you, to rejoice in you. I guess to thank you, Lord, that you've given us another day to minister to others when really our hearts are in heaven and desiring to be uh, with you. Uh, Give us the grace that we need to understand your word and to receive it into our hearts, Lord, that it might change us, that we might go about changing others as we just walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Most of you know I'd rather attend a wedding than a funeral, but I'd much rather officiate a funeral than a wedding. A funeral provides the single most powerful context for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Solomon put it into perspective when he said, and this is from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Death, he says, is the end of all men, but only with regard to the life we are currently living on the earth. All men will live on after death. All men will live forever. Where we will live and the quality of that life is determined before we die. If a person dies having never received Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible explains that, and I quote, it is appointed for men once to die, but after this judgment. The judgment is described in the last book of the Bible. This is from Revelation 20, beginning in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. What about the believer in Jesus Christ? What happens when a Christian dies? 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 8. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We are confident, we are well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When you see the contrasting destinations, you can understand why the psalmist was inspired to write, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, as I mentioned, our text records the precious death of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. Abraham's reaction to her death and the actions he takes to bury her reveal the hope of eternal life with God that every believer can and should hold on to. With hope despite death as our theme, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you can shed tears of hope at the death of a believer. Number two, you can share a testimony of hope 
at the death of a believer. Let's take a look, first of all, verses 1 and 2, at shedding tears of hope. Now, as I was approaching this, I remembered uh, a phrase, do no harm. It's an important ethical consideration for anyone dealing with a sensitive subject. In my work as a law enforcement and fire chaplain, I'm sometimes asked to give a presentation uh, to a group describing what it is a chaplain does. Since one of the things that I do is deliver death notifications, I always ask if anyone in the audience has ever received a death notification or if someone has recently died. I do it to try to mitigate any possible reaction to the material that I'm presenting because just talking about death hypothetically brings some people back to their emotions to an actual death in their experience. And since probably all of us have some experience with the death of a loved one, I, I want to do no harm by at least reminding you that it's normal to have an emotional reaction to our subject this morning. But with that in mind, we do need to take a look at death, especially the death of a believer and about the supernatural hope that God provides through his son and in the scriptures. And so we begin, obviously, in verse one, where we read, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. What years they were. Author John Phillips writes of Sarah almost as a eulogy and says, she had begun her days in far-off Ur, a pagan, a worshiper of the moon. She was born a poor, lost sinner, the same as anyone else. She grew up a pretty little thing with a saucy tongue, and she met and married an energetic young man well on his way to making his fortune in Ur. Abraham had been a pagan too, but with a restless, unsatisfied soul. Well, he knew in his heart that the moon, the queen of heaven, was no true god, but out there behind, uh, behind rather all those shining orbs and stars, behind the black velvet of the night, there must be a true and living God. His secret doubts and heresies he had perhaps whispered to Sarah in the quiet security of their urban life in Ur. Then came the blinding revelation of that true and living God and the long pilgrimage which all its ups and downs. Sarah had shared it all. Now she was dead, but she had died in fellowship. She had died at Hebron. To die in the place of fellowship is the next best thing to never dying at all. Verse 2. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Kirjath Arba means something like the suburb of four. I do, you ever, do you ever do some research online or in your books and say, oh, this means that? And, you know, um, it, some of these things have several meanings. Uh, and, and so you have to be careful. But Kirjath Arba seems to mean the suburb of four. And according to ancient Jewish tradition, this name was given because they believed four couples were buried there. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Leah, and Isaac and Rebekah. This place later came to be called Hebron. Interestingly, the present Arabic name of Hebron is Al-Khalil, meaning the friend, referring to Abraham as the friend of God. Now, when the text says that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was away from her when she died and had to rush back. It means he came to have a specific time of mourning and weeping for her. We might call this a wake uh, today, followed by a funeral. Now, there's nothing wrong with a believer shedding tears over the tragedies and heartaches 
of this life. Jesus himself, you remember, wept at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, even though he knew that he would momentarily raise him from the dead. Uh, And so the Lord was touched with the tragedies of this world. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, even though he had joy all of the time as a perfectly spirit-filled man. And so I only mention this because I've noticed over the years that people grieve in different ways. And sometimes people are offended at the way other people seem to be grieving or not grieving enough. Uh, you know, and people, people are hurting enough without somebody having to tell them that they're not grieving the proper way uh, for the death of a loved one. And so, uh, you know, however it is that you react, you react, and that's just you, and there's no right way to uh, react uh, to these things. It's just your own reaction and when it comes. Your tears are precious to God. This is, I think, something we need to remind people of more often. We know they are because the Bible says he saves them. Psalm 56, 8 reads, You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? And so, according to the psalmist, God records your tears in a book, and then he also reserves them in a special bottle. I wonder if in your heavenly mansion there will not be on the bookshelf your book of tears. Now, for some of you, it's going to be like the size of an encyclopedia. Uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, some people, they just have a more difficult life. They just cry more often. I'm not just talking about people who are emotional, but I mean, some people just have a more difficult life. If it's there, it's for you to peruse and you'll be able to see the faithfulness of God through every difficulty you've experienced. Since in heaven, we're told every tear is wiped away, your book of recorded tears will be there to increase your joy. Today, you put perfume and precious ointments and fragrances in expensive bottles. Some people even wear them around their necks. I like to think that you and I will be given our tears in God's bottle as our own unique fragrance that will grace us for all eternity. But this is a very tender uh, and wonderful verse. He numbers my wanderings. And, uh, you know, he, he, he has all of that under control. And when I'm in the category of tragedy and all of those things, then God is saving my tears and recording them in his book. You know, uh, he's, how would you like to be the angel on tear duty? You know, and every tear so precious to God that he wants an accounting for it. How many tears did... Gene cry that day. Uh, He can tell me, uh, and he knows, and and he knows probably the intensity of it. Knowing God and how creative and wonderful he is, he probably knows the composition and the weight and all of those things. It'd be a tear graph in heaven. And and so God loves you that much. You know, it's one thing, you know, we read in the the Gospels, God numbers the hairs of your head, and that's pretty cool. You know, not, not just how many hairs you have, but each hair has its own number. Uh, And and so the more you dig into this, the more you find God really is interested in your life and your tears and your fears and all of these other things. And so very precious. Abraham wept, but not without hope. He was looking for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
Sarah had died in faith, believing the promises of God. Abraham, his eyes wet with tears, nevertheless could look up through the heavens and with the eyes of faith see that city where sorrow and the shedding of tears are no more. He knew he would see Sarah again. And that brings us to verses 3 through 20, sharing a testimony of hope at the death of a believer. The opening phrase of verse 3 sets the theme for the remaining verses of this chapter. It says, Then Abraham stood up before his dead and spoke. A memorial, a funeral, or a graveside service for a believer is a time to stand up before the dead saint and speak about eternal issues. It is a rare and special opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to look at the dialogue between Abraham and the sons of Heth with an eye towards the testimony he was able to share with them as he, in a sense, stood before his dead. And so verses 3 and 4, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham and Sarah were God's foreigners, God's visitors. In other places, they are called pilgrims and strangers, wanderers, sojourners. It may sound obvious, but at the death of a believer, you're able to share a testimony about the temporary nature of this life and our certain hope in the next. Nothing is more profound uh, to me than to stand at a funeral when people are thinking, <coughs> hey, where is this person? What happened? And to say, hey, this life is temporary, but with absolute clarity and certainty, we can tell you where this person is and what happens after death. Notice Abraham also says that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He repeats that in verse 8. Out of my sight gives a sense that the person is still there, still alive, just not where you can see them. I was thinking, it's not a, a perfect analogy, but I was thinking about when we have small children and, and we maybe go to the park or some public place and you want them to always be in your sight. And when they go out of your sight, they're still there, but you just can't see them. This, Abraham says, she's out of my sight, but he knows that she's going to live forever. C.S. Lewis once said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. I, I sort of like that until somebody's going to write me and say that's some crazy heresy. But it's, it's not. It's, it's great. It, you understand what he's saying. You're a living soul and God has given you a body. Now, Abraham could no longer see Sarah in this life. She would be out of his sight, but only temporarily. How did he know that? How could he be sure? In chapter 22, Abraham had come to the understanding that there would be a resurrection from the dead. Abraham, on his way to offer his only son, reasoned that God would have to raise him from the dead. God prevented the actual sacrifice of Isaac, substituting a ram that was nearby, caught in a thicket. Abraham, you'll remember, had told Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb. But on Moriah, God provided not a lamb, but a ram. And so perhaps in contemplating this, Abraham came to understand that on some future day, on that same mountain even, God would not spare his own son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but that he would raise him up from the dead. We talked about the parable of Abraham when we studied that chapter a few weeks ago and, and how it 
prefigures the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony you proclaim at the death of a believer. Jesus is the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. It means he's the, the first of many more to come. And those who believe in Jesus Christ, they are the many more to come. Uh, Jesus proclaimed resurrection outside the tomb of Lazarus when he said that he was the resurrection and the life. And so any decent funeral message has to have some talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ physically, bodily, from the dead, uh, just as God had said. Verse 5, And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet me uh, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, they had lived separated from the world and from worldliness. And so Abraham desired Sarah reflect separation in her burial, identifying with the promises of God and with the people of God. He wanted her interment in death to preach about her choices in life. There's a spiritual principle here. It's not that, you know, believers can't be buried next to unbelievers or anything like that. But in his case, he wanted her interment to say something about the separated life that they had chosen. Your choices in life are writing your eulogy. Eulogies are notoriously false as people struggle to say only good and superlative things about a person. I understand, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been at so many funerals over the years, uh, and it, people just say things that are not true about the dead. They make them seem a lot better than they actually were. Or they say really dumb things. Uh, you know, just if you ever have to give a eulogy at that point where they say, if anybody wants to come up and say a few words, just speak from your heart. Don't try to be profound. Don't try to be funny. You'll end up being funnier if you just speak from your heart. But, you know, I've had people say the heard people say the dumbest things. Oh, he he or she died doing what they always wanted. Yeah, no. They were in a drunken driving accident that they were the cause of. I mean, you know what? I, I don't know what's wrong with people sometimes. They just, they go crazy when they do eulogies. And so eulogies are notoriously false as people struggle to say only good and superlative things. Think about the honest eulogy that would be given at your funeral. You know, every couple of years we do the uh, Every 15 Minutes program at uh, Lamore High uh, and one of the components of that program is that the parents have to write uh, kind of an obituary eulogy for the student who is supposedly died in a drunk driving related accident. It's very emotional. Uh, it's, it's a real tearjerker, you know. I'm not recommending it, but, I, but just think, what could be said at your funeral? Would your walk in the Lord, your separated pilgrim, stranger, sojourner walk be the theme? Or would people talk about things that are a little bit more worldly? We want them to talk about things that are otherworldly. 
about us and spiritual. And uh, the good thing for us is that there's still time for a rewrite or editing uh, because we're not at our funerals just yet. Verse 10, now Ephraim dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out the silver to Ephraim, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver currency of the merchants. Now, in the culture of the times, business was conducted openly in the gates of the city where the chief men and elders gathered each day. Abraham and Ephraim reached an agreement in the negotiating fashion of the day. If you think back to Abraham's negotiation with God before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you get the same feeling. It's like, well, would you do it for 20? How about 15? You know, back and forth. There's really not much back and forth here, though, with Abraham and Ephraim. Ephraim says, oh, I'll give it to you for nothing, which he doesn't mean. Everybody understood that he didn't mean he wanted to really give it to him. It's just how they haggled. And Abraham said, no, I want to pay you for it. What's it worth? And then Ephraim said, well, what's 400 shekels between us? And then it would have been normal for Abraham to say something like, nothing really, my brother, but what about 200 shekels? You know, and that, that was just the expected kind of thing that you did. It was like going to the Monday sale, sort of. Only the merchandise wasn't all stolen. Uh, But anyway, no, I don't mean that. Just some of it. And so they reached this agreement, but Abraham would have shocked everyone by agreeing to Ephraim's initial price. Ephraim said, I'll give it to you. It's worth 400, which is obviously an inflated price. And Abraham says, that's fine with me. Let's get this thing done. Now, it doesn't mean Christians shouldn't shop for bargains or haggle prices when possible. In the context of Sarah's funeral, Abraham's lack of haggling over the price of the land indicated that his focus was on eternal things. This world's goods and resources were, in his mind, something that could be turned into ministry. So how does his agreeing to a higher price minister? Well, one thing that comes to mind is that while Ephraim was approaching the situation in the usual worldly manner of making a negotiation, Abraham's focus was on the eternal rewards and investing his monies for God's purposes. In other words, this was Abraham's way of being able to say, I don't care about money or this world's goods. If you say it's worth 400, I'm not going to haggle with you. I'll give you the 400 because our life has been all about investing in the kingdom of God, investing in future rewards. And I believe that God will take the 400 or the 200 or the 1,000 that you're asking, whatever it would be, and turn that into a future reward. So let me ask you this. I ask myself as well. Are you getting ready for retirement or are you getting ready for eternal rest and reward? Are you Ephraim or are you Abraham in this story? Verse 17, so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, 
And all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit all of the land of Canaan. The only real estate he ever really owned, other than some water rights he acquired, was a wooded cemetery. Earth can be thought of as a massive graveyard. I don't know how this figure was arrived at or if it's accurate in any sense, but according to one source, at least 12 billion people have lived and died in the history of mankind. Whatever you and I think we own, in the end, it's really just a cemetery. Our real inheritance is waiting for us in heaven. Verse 19, And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now, since we're talking about deaths and funerals, uh, this is a little off topic, but let me address a question that people always ask. Is it wrong to cremate a body? Cremation was practiced in biblical times, but it was not commonly practiced by the Israelites or New Testament believers. In the cultures of Bible times, burial in a tomb, a cave, or in the ground was the common way to uh, deal with the remains. It's interesting, though, Jewish burial customs in the first century included primary burials in caves, followed by secondary burials in ossuaries placed in smaller niches of the caves. As you might know, an ossuary, it's also sometimes called a bone box. It's a chest uh, of some kind made to serve as the final resting place of human skeletal remains, frequently used where burial space is scarce. A body would first be buried in a temporary grave, and then after some years of decay, the skeletal remains are removed and placed in an ossuary. Now, I include that only to say that a lot of times people will try and put a burden on you that you have to bury uh, an individual and it has to be in a certain fashion because that's what you read in the Bible. And the fact of the matter is you read of all kinds of different burials in the Bible, and there were all kinds of different cultural practices. And while burial was obviously common, the Bible nowhere commands burial as the preferred method of handling the remains of a body. In all of the very specific laws governing every aspect of life, there is simply no direct teaching about burial versus cremation. Some argue that because the body will be resurrected, we ought to treat it with respect and bury it as opposed to cremating it. Listen, the body is going to break down in burial, just not as fast as in cremation. God will have no problem raising from the dead any person, no matter the final disposition of the body. Uh, I mean, if you think of it that way, obviously, sadly, uh, many, many multiplied millions, uh, maybe even billions of people have died and uh, their remains have been lost or not properly buried or accounted for. Uh, do, does anybody really think that God is going to be confused at the trumpet when there's a resurrection from the dead and he brings from the seed of that previous body the new body that he's been preparing uh, for eternity. Uh, not at all. And so to me, this is a personal decision. And whatever you decide, the real issue 
the more important issue is standing up before your dead and speaking to those who have gathered about Jesus Christ. Now, in reviewing Sarah's death and burial, you might be wondering, where was Isaac? He's not mentioned in the text. Did he miss his mom's funeral? Well, we don't know if he missed it or not. And we want to be careful never to build an argument from silence. But we can see a type here. And so this isn't an argument from silence because we don't know if he was there or not. You know, a lot of things, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It tells us what we need to know for life and godliness and for insight. Now, the last time we saw Isaac, he was being offered to God by his father as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The first time we see Isaac after his experience on Mount Moriah is when he goes out to meet the woman chosen to be his wife, Rebecca. It's a type of the relationship between Jesus Christ and New Testament Christians. We are sometimes called the bride of Jesus Christ, are we not? And he is the heavenly bridegroom. It's one of the illustrations or analogies or metaphors, whatever you prefer, to talk about his great love for us. And it's interesting to note that Isaac is the only patriarch to have only one wife. Uh, If you're working within this type, uh, it fits the type just as Jesus Christ has his bride, the church. And so Jesus died on the cross in the same vicinity as Isaac's near sacrifice. Only in his case, God did not spare his only son, but offered him up for our salvation. The first time we will see the Savior after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is when he comes to claim his chosen bride at the resurrection and rapture of the church. And so I think it's precious that God in this chapter about life and death and the afterlife of the believer builds into it a typology of his love for the church, where he says, hey, you scratch your head and say, hey, where's Isaac? And, and God says, he's, he's a type of me, as I will meet you again for the first time as my bride uh, when I come to resurrect and rapture the church. Now, there's some people, some believers, who will never physically die, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Paul says, I tell you a mystery, which means he's revealing something that was not revealed previously in the Bible. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so uh, Jesus is coming at one point and obviously when he comes to resurrect the dead in Christ, there will be living believers on planet earth and they will never taste death. They will immediately be translated to heaven in glorified bodies. Every week I say in the Prophecy Update, get ready and stay ready and keep looking up because ready or not, Jesus is coming. It might be better to say, I don't have to get ready because I stay ready. And so I'd encourage you this new year uh, as a believer to be in a state in which you will not be ashamed before Jesus at his coming, to stay in first love with the Lord, uh, to have a heart that can't wait to see him, And for those who are not believers, only one way to get ready, it has never changed, it is to receive Jesus Christ because he is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together.